Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So tonight we are going to obviously have a very specific message. And I know on Christmas Eve you're supposed to read from certain passages. I know there's certain things that we're supposed to cover and touch on. And, and I think that we will cover some of those things. But when I was looking at the Christmas story and I started from the very beginning, there were a few things that jumped out at me. And yes, we do know very well the story that we have, the star in the sky, the baby Jesus being born in the manger. We have the shepherds out in the fields and the wise men, and and we're very familiar with each aspect of this story, and we should be. Because as I said, this is one of the greatest moments in human history, and the only thing close to it would have been when Jesus died and when he rose again. So we're very aware of this story, but tonight I did want to take a little bit of time and to look at a part that we might generally skip over. And there's a good reason why we skip over this. If you open your Bibles and you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says that it is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I don't know about you, but for me, generally speaking, from the time I was a kid, when I'd open my Bible and see a genealogy, wherever it was found, I would very quickly skip past it. Now, I know some people in here, and I, I know a few Bible scholars that, that really do appreciate the, the fine details of every scripture. But for me, the genealogy is not usually the exciting part. And so before you leave, don't worry, we are going to talk about the genealogy. But, but there are some interesting things that we found here. And so when we start in the very beginning, Matthew 1.1, we see some names that we're very familiar with. We see the name Abraham. And we know Abraham very well. Abraham is known as the father of faith, the father of many nations. We spoke about him a few weeks ago. We spoke about Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, which said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is an incredible promise made to Abram at the time who would become Abraham. We know that he would follow God, that he would walk faithfully according to what God had called him to do, and because of this, this covenant, this promise was brought to reality. When it says that all the nations are going to be blessed through you, we can look at that and know that it's because Jesus himself was going to come out of the line of Abraham. So Abraham being a part of this story, not so surprising. King David, same thing. Not so surprising that he's named here specifically. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, that God says to David that throughout the generations, you are going to have a descendant who is going to sit on the throne. And we know that Jesus would later on come through the line of David. So Abraham and David, two men that are not surprising whatsoever. But when we continue to read through the genealogy, there are plenty of other names that we might not recognize. Plenty of other names that if we take a little bit of a deeper look, we can see some interesting parts of their story. 
But I want to just say right off the bat here that even though we tend to overlook the genealogy, there is significance to it. But I think there are times in our lives where we might feel overlooked ourselves. There might be times where our stories don't seem significant enough to be told and to be retold. But the thing that I know about God is that he never misses a moment of our lives. And in those moments, he can take what is broken, what is damaged, and even at times what is looked at to be shameful, to take it and to use it to redeem it and to make it beautiful. That is the goodness of our God. And so the name of tonight's message is the Christmas miracle of redemption. If there are places in your life that you feel have been broken, if you feel like there are places in your life that have been overlooked or neglected, I have good news for you. God sees, he knows, and he will use every opportunity to be able to restore your life back to him. So tonight we're going to look, once again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, don't fall asleep on me, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. I had to look that up. I had to make sure it wasn't pronounced Salmon. It's Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. All right, so we know that nothing that is placed in Scripture is done so unintentionally. If it's in here, it's in here for a reason. And so when we read this genealogy, we have to ask ourselves the very simple question, which is, why? Why is this here? Why did Matthew take the time to do this? And there are a couple of reasons. One, we know that Matthew is very meticulous. But number two, Matthew would have been writing this for a Jewish audience. And it was really important for the audience to hear and to know where Jesus came from. This was before the days of 23andMe and the genealogy and the DNA testing. And so to know where Jesus came from, Matthew had to take the time to write and to say, this was the generations that led to Jesus. This is where he came from. And this would have been the thing that would have showed the audience that Jesus was for real, that he was royalty. So we look at verse three, and I just want to highlight a few parts of this tonight. I want to talk about a few individuals that we might not ordinarily look at, that we might not ordinarily consider, and to see how God used their lives in ways that I'm sure they could never imagine. And also, if I'm honest tonight, there are a few names in here that I would question as to why God used them, just from my perspective. If I was God, I may have done things a little bit differently, okay? Verse 3 says, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, so this is a little bit interesting when we dive into this. Judah, it was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, 
as in Abraham, <clears throat> Isaac, and Jacob. Now, has anyone ever heard the phrase before, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah? This is how Revelation chapter 5 refers to Jesus. And I have to say, I think that's a pretty awesome name. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And so when I read that, I think to myself, well, Judah must have been a pretty cool guy for Jesus to be named the lion of the tribe of Judah. Turns out, not so much. We read about Judah a little bit, and we find out that Judah, yes, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And he's noticed two specific times throughout the scriptures in in the book of Genesis that, that I really have taken note of. The first time is in the plot to kill and to enslave Joseph. So first of all, you know, that's one strike against him. Not, not a really good thing. In his defense, he is the one that says, well, maybe we shouldn't kill our brother Joseph. Maybe we should just sell him into slavery so we can make some money off of him. All right, so Judah's not really like the top of our list. Like I don't see him mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 anywhere. Not really the one we want to be following after. And then there's this other story in Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38 is this whole chapter devoted to this relationship that Judah has. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, and because it's Christmas Eve and I know we have places to go, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit for you. We find Judah, and he has his firstborn son. Now, I didn't really bother to write down his name. I'm not sure if it's in there at all. But Judah's firstborn son apparently was such a bad guy that God decided, okay, your time on earth is done. And he just kills him. Just, he's done. It's like, think about Enoch, where God takes him into heaven, but the exact opposite. (laughs) Just wipes him off the planet. Okay, so Judah's first son, not so great, but he leaves behind a widow named Tamar. So then Judah's second son marries Tamar. He does some not so good things in the eyes of God. Same thing. God wipes the second son off the face of the earth. So now we have Tamar widowed a second time. Judah says, I'm going to give to you my youngest son. This will be your husband. But apparently he thinks better of it because his sons keep dying. So it doesn't end up happening. And then we read this really interesting story, which is that Tamar comes up with a plan disguises herself as a prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law, Judah, and becomes pregnant. And it's at this point that you ask, wasn't this supposed to be a Christmas message? (laughs) We're going to get there. Tamar has twin boys named Perez and Zerah. Her son's name is Perez. This is the one that would continue the line of Abraham to Jesus. Very interesting to me that this is the one that God chooses to continue the line of descendants that would lead to the Son of God coming onto the earth. He doesn't choose Joseph, the one who is so righteous and so upstanding in character that he saves an entire nation and multiple nations. He chooses Judah. And through Judah and through his daughter-in-law and through this relationship that never should have happened, we have a son that comes forward that continues the line of Jesus. When I'm reading this story, I don't know about you, but I think to myself, maybe God should have chose somebody a little bit more kingly. Maybe somebody a little bit more royal. I think that these two right here are a little bit more Prince Harry and Meghan than they are uh, 
Kate and the other one who I don't really remember their name. William, I think. I Googled it real quick. I don't think that they were really the ones that you would look at and be like, these are the ones that I'm going to continue the line of Jesus with. But this brings up a question for me. How often in our lives do we look at all of the reasons why God can't use us? How often do we disqualify ourselves because of our past, because of our mistakes, because of where we've come from, because of the things that we've gone through, and yet we see that God uses the most unlikely of individuals to carry out his plan and his purpose because he's God, because he'll do what he wants to do, and because he knows more about us than we could ever understand or imagine. And yet sometimes we are the ones that get in the way of God doing what he wants to do in us. So we're going to continue this. We go on to verse 5, and it says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. There's a few familiar names in this verse as well. Boaz and Ruth specifically, we recognize from the book of Ruth. The story opens up with a woman named Naomi. She has two daughters-in-law. Her son dies, and so she tells her daughters to go back to their homelands to go back and to find another husband. And we read in verses 16 and 17 of Ruth 1, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Some pretty powerful words spoken by Ruth in this moment. So the story continues and Ruth ends up marrying a a man by the name of Boaz. And we see this beautiful story of redemption. But then we look at the fact that Ruth is actually now a part of the lineage of Jesus by marrying Boaz. Now there's something else about Ruth that I never really picked up on. And I think it's important for us to take note of this. Because in the story of Ruth, it talks about Ruth's, um, her family, where she comes from. And Ruth is a Moabite. Now that might not mean a whole lot to you, but in this time especially, when God looked at the Hebrew people and the Israelites, he told them very specifically, I want you to have nothing to do with the Moabites. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. He says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation, and none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way out of Egypt. So God looks at the Moabites and he says, You're going to be punished because of what your ancestors did. And yet, Ruth, the Moabite, the one that... that They weren't supposed to have anything to do with as the Hebrew people. Because of her faith, because she connects herself to Naomi, because she follows after something that she knew internally that she must pursue, that God actually ends up using her life to be part of the lineage of Jesus. Now, once again, this is interesting to me because how often in our lives do we look at where we come from? We look at our surroundings. We look at our circumstances. 
Maybe we look at our family history and we think, well, my family has never amounted to much, and so I'm not going to amount to much. We look at the situations that our families have grown up in, whether it was poverty or if it was abuse or if it was places where there was just dysfunction going on, and we look at our future and we judge it based off of our past. And yet God shows once again in this story that he will take any situation, he will take us from wherever we come from, and he is not bound by our heritage. He's not bound by our previous actions. He's not bound by those things. He is able to do what he needs to do in our life. It requires one simple thing, trust and obedience. Trust and obedience. When we walk in trust and obedience to our Father, when we allow ourselves to get out of the way, I said this the other day when we were talking about Abraham. I said, God does not need our help to bring his promise to pass in our life. He doesn't need our help, but I want to say this as well. He also doesn't need our opinions. He doesn't need our opinions of what we think is possible and what he is able to do in our lives. I don't know if anybody else in here has ever received the prophetic word that you're like, I don't know how that's ever going to happen. Am I alone in that? I don't know how this is ever going to come to pass. We read the scriptures and we see that, that God knows us, that he has a future and a hope for us. We know that he's created us for something specific according to his word. And we start to think about all the reasons why it can't be possible, why it's never going to happen. And yet we see again that God can use us no matter where we come from. We continue to read this and we see this other name in verse 5. I don't know if you caught this, but it says that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Does anyone recognize that name? In Joshua chapter 6 verse 17, we see a story of a prostitute being used by God to secure the destruction of the city of Jericho. For the Hebrew people to enter into the land of promise. Joshua 6 verse 17 says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. But only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And it's not just that. Not only does Rahab have the privilege of, of being in the line of Jesus. Not only is it, it that it's a woman being talked about in this, but it's a woman who was a prostitute. It's a woman who was not living a life that any would see and assume was a godly lifestyle. And yet because of her faith, two things happen. She's mentioned in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So we have in Hebrews chapter 11, just so you know, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, and Rahab. Who would have thought that the woman inside the walls of Jericho would have been a woman that was named in the hall of faith and would be named as an ancestor of Jesus? You see, far too often we still look at our own resume. We look at our own idea of what we're worth and we continue to ask the question, can we really be used by God? 
Can he really use us for his purpose? You see, sometimes we don't only question, can we be used? But maybe we get to the point where we think, well, maybe he can use me. Maybe he can. Maybe God can actually take my life and what I have to offer and to use it for good. But still, we tend to take what he has said and then we tend to minimize it. Well, yes, God can use me, but only for so much. God can use me, but, but I'm sure he's only going to use me for something small. Because of what I've been through, because of what I've gone through, because of what I think is possible, he's going to use me, but only up to this point. I don't know if we ever verbalize these thoughts, but I can tell you that there have been times in my life where I have questioned just how far God is going to take me because I know myself better than anybody else. Because I know my thoughts. Because I know the things sometimes that I'm like, God, I just want to walk in accordance with what you have for me. But I know myself. I don't know about you if you know yourself. But sometimes, because we know ourselves best, we're the ones that end up being our own worst critics. We're the ones that put limitations on God. And I want to tell you tonight that if you know who he is, If you know that he loves you, would you please stop minimizing what God wants to do and is able to do in and through your life? Stop minimizing what God wants to do. We continue this story and we see this young boy named David. David, who in the eyes of so many was just a shepherd boy. David, who was the one that wasn't even important enough for his father, Jesse, to bring him from the fields, to bring him before the prophet Samuel. The one that was overlooked by so many. One who maybe, according to some biblical scholars, may have been the product of an adulterous relationship himself. And maybe that's why he wasn't brought to the table. Certainly one who would have been well acquainted with rejection. And yet David would not be defined by the rejection of his father or anybody else. But he would stand up to a giant. He would become a king. Yes, he would make a mess of things sometimes. Yes, he would make poor decisions. Decisions that would have lasting ramifications that would go forward. But can I tell you something else amazing about this genealogy? That when it talks about the line of David, the line goes through Solomon. And Solomon's mother, I don't know if you know this story, is Bathsheba. The woman that David had an affair with and then killed her husband. And yet this is the relationship that God chooses to bless to become the one who would bring about the Savior of the world. I don't know about you, but I don't understand God. It doesn't make sense to me. But the more that I look at what he is capable of. The more that I read about his heart and his nature, I start to recognize that God can use me, that God can use you, that God can use any one of us if we would simply trust in him. Then we continue, and finally we start to look at a part of this story that resembles a little bit more of a Christmas story. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we see this interaction between the angel Gabriel and a young girl named Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee 
named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But her response was this. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Does anyone think that if you put yourself right now in the position of Mary, you might be questioning your credentials a little bit to have the angel of the Lord standing before you in your bedroom telling you that there is something amazing going to happen? The angel Gabriel continues to say to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. God shows up to a young girl that really from an earthly standpoint has no business being a part of the story of God becoming flesh, of Emmanuel, God being with us. And yet the angel comes up and says, you have found favor in the eyes of God. Now I'm sure Mary was great and all. I don't know much about her before this part of the story. But can I tell you that even if she was the best person to ever walk the planet at that time, she was still not worthy of carrying the Son of God in her womb, except for that God said she was. Can I tell you that when God speaks something over your life, it is more powerful than anything else that anyone else has ever said about you? That when God speaks a word over your life, that even when it seems impossible, it becomes possible because of who he is. That is the story of God. That is the story of creation. It's the story of God using each one of us. And it's the story of God using Mary. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived the son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. I think there's a few of us in this room tonight that need to look at our own lives that need to look at the situations that we're going through, that need to look at the things that we're facing right now, that need to stop looking in the rearview mirror, need to stop looking at the past, need to stop looking at your shortcomings, and to say, for with God, nothing is impossible. For with God, nothing is impossible. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who came from perfection to imperfection. The God who left his very throne room to come be with his people. She looks at the angel and says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Jesus, the Savior of the world, born in a manger, born as a descendant 
of sinful men, of men and women who didn't have it all figured out, who didn't have all the answers. Yet God, the God through whom nothing is impossible, took their lives and used it for more than they could ever imagine. I want to ask tonight that when you serve this God, when you look to this Savior Jesus, is there something that inside of you starts to look at your situations and to say, maybe, just maybe, God wants to do more in my life than I've ever imagined. Maybe there is something that God wants to do through my life that is going to have a bigger impact than I have ever allowed myself to think about and to dream about. You see, this is the God that we serve. This is the beauty. This is the story of Christmas. I want to ask if our worship team would come back up here tonight. I want to take some time just before we end. I know it's Christmas Eve and I want to give you the ability to go home to your families. But I am just so grateful for the opportunity tonight to share this story with you. To look at the beauty of our Savior. To look at the one who would come to this earth to bring salvation to the world. The one who is Jesus that could take what is broken, what is damaged, and even what is shameful to redeem and make beautiful. During this Christmas, I want to ask, what is it that God wants to speak to you? What are the places in a lineage of imperfection, in situations that don't seem to make sense, in places where you just don't see the hope? What is it that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you here tonight? The same Holy Spirit that showed up to Mary the same power that worked in her life, the same power that was present in Jesus through his ministry, the same power that led him to a cross to die for our sins, but the same power that allowed him to rise from the grave and to give us a new life. That is the Jesus that we serve. Yes, it all started on Christmas Day, but it didn't end there because that Jesus desires to live inside of each one of us. That Jesus desires to give us a greater hope than we could ever imagine. That Jesus is present in this room right now. And wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever your relationship with him has been to this point, he is reaching out to you tonight through the story of Christmas saying, I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want to show you what is possible. I want to give you a greater understanding of who you really are. Not who you think you are, not who you think you should be, but who he has made us to be. It's only through Jesus. It's only through our response to his pursuit that we can become the men and the women that he has called us to be.